I'll go through a few different things, but I kind of want to start with defining what this material culture, everyday material culture is, because I feel like health and well-being is, in this audience at least, just pretty straightforward. Um, this is a coffee table with some superimposed texts <laughs> that are, are some of the key texts that I rely on. So Stanley was one of my supervisors here, but Inga Daniels was another supervisor. And so that's her book, um, The Japanese House. And then we have Daniel Miller's um, kind of thinking through materiality as well as the household and also what's called the kind of critical geographies of the home which is this one, so that's kind of moving out of anthropology. But those are the perspectives I'm drawing on. And this everyday material culture approach to the home um, in its root stems from the material turn in anthropology of kind of starting to look at objects um, as part of the way that we understand humans, which has always been there, but there's been more of an emphasis on it, I think, since the 80s. Um, but it's really since then incorporated a lot more around sensory engagement with space, atmosphere, kind of emotion, flows, everyday flows, it's a big thing, so infrastructure. Um, so all of that kind of goes into this sense of what the everyday material culture of the home is. Um, trying to think of anything else. And so, so that's something that I um, was thinking through working on, wanted to go into homes and explore <coughs> health and well-being from this perspective, from this kind of methodological perspective. Um, so what I did, oh, and also I should say the critical geographies of the home is a little bit different, but um, it draws on this everyday material culture of the home, but also incorporates um, identity and power, which is something um, I think more of interest, especially in gender studies in relation to the household. Um, and then the multi-scalar home. So going out beyond the home, how the home connects to um, the community, the, the state, and the globe. So looking through those kind of scales. So those are, those are some of the backgrounds I'm coming from. Um, so I wanna talk first a little bit about my fieldwork, what I actually was doing before I get to this kind of fridge question, because this is gonna be the case study. Um, I, basically went into, uh, I, sno I did a snowball method. So I started with households that I knew in Providence, Rhode Island in the United States, which is, Providence is like an hour south of Boston and about three hours from New York on the coast, to kind of give you a sense of where that is. Um, so I snowballed, ended up having 18 households. Um, I went in for two interviews with all households and then lived with and um, spent time with, like went through all these routines of daily life with, with each of these houses in different capacities, whatever they kind of let me do. So also kind of interesting in depth, <laughs> weird field work. <laughs> it's a lot of like being left with children, carrying groceries and, you know, <laughs> everyday stuff. So in the first interview I asked, um, about people's everyday routines from when they get up in the morning to when they go to bed. And they kind of just walked me through this, this experience. Um, also like what well, actually walked me through the home. So it was kind of a, not just telling me what they did, but showing me the home as we did this. And then in the next interview, um, which was usually three to six months later to kind of capture some time changes as well, um, 
they, I asked about health and well-being, the material culture of health and well-being. So that was asking them about spaces, experience, and objects that had to do with health, um, both positive and negative, and then had to do with well-being. So it also helped me kind of articulate what health is for people versus well-being. Um, and this process, as well as the in-depth ethnography field work, hanging out, um, <laughs> uncovered the, a kind of, um, the biggest health and well-being, I think, issue, it turned out, was anxiety um, and stress <laughs> for these middle-class households. So that's an, that ended up being what I got interested in, and um, a lot of that stemmed from transition. So most of the households, all of the households, had been in a recent, were going through or were about to make a fairly big transition. These included um, new jobs, moving, breakups, um, marriage, new babies, death, Kind of these things that I think we've all dealt with, but it was really interesting. It, it was interesting to me that it stood out that everyone had something going on and that this was a big part of this kind of anxiety and stress that they're negotiating. Um, so I ended up studying uncertainty, which I don't really talk a lot about today, but it might just come up. So we have some, some background on that. Um, so basically how these households negotiate uncertainty and sustain well-being through their everyday material culture. So that's kind of a little bit of background. Also to give you a bit of more the socio-cultural background of the homes, these are my homes. Um, a lot of information, but each of these colors is household types. So we have like single people, single adults living alone, couples, families, um, and then shared housing amongst adults. So three different people living in the, one of them was me. Um, <laughs> and uh, mostly it was like a nice age range as well from mid-20s to, to 80s uh, with a concentration in the 30s and 40s I think because of the families a lot of them were young families um, and very it was very white um, I think in the middle class in this context it's hard to actually get out of that it's a very segregated um, part of the world, I would say. <laughs> a lot of wealth disparity. So it's kind of, you know, that's what's going on there. Just for some background. I can go back to that if anyone's interested. Um, so I think the question that emerges, first of all, I'm just going to make sure I cover everything, is um, how to study material culture of health and well-being. Um, because I think the go-to has always been obvious health objects in the home, like technologies that have to do with health, um, medicine, uh, what else? Drug use overall, it's kind of, you know, people have looked at these kinds of materialities of the home, but not a broader everyday material culture perspective of what are these everyday flows and experiences and how do they relate back to health. So that type of analysis takes this very in-depth um, participant observation. And I had a few images I've taken. I did a very visual ethnography, so a lot of these are art images. But um, I, I picked these out because I think it encapsulates some of this mundane daily stuff you might be doing, like, like literally living with people. So there's just like brushing your teeth. <laughs> going shopping with them, which is this cooking is a big part of it. I did a lot of cooking with people and talking about their activities in that in that sense. And then um, 
going out in town, doing different things, getting coffee, talking about stuff, having your kind of informal interview settings. Um, and also I did a little bit with uh, getting them engaged with friends <coughs> and communication in that way. So there was some, some element, I was trying to get people to take their own photos of their kind of daily habits, and that was just not, no one wanted to do this. Like, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, in the end, I got to, like, everyone actually wants human contact. We're not so <laughs> into technology, I think, it's too thick. Um, so I had a lot of human contact and less of that. But that's kind of how you go about this. So one of the questions, and I think the problem of this case study and this presentation is how do you then take this thing that normally requires a lot of in-depth persistent observation and translate it to more um, like public health related studies of the home. So if you want to go into homes, you're only there for one or two interviews. How do you get more in-depth information from that short session? Uh, which brings me to the fridge. <laughs> um, oh, and first, sorry, this is a, what I should say is this, this has been addressed so a few kind of key people that I've looked at this are um, Sarah Pink, who does a lot with video and sensory engagement with the home. So sometimes it's about, I think she actually films people on their tour of the home, where I decided not to use film. Um, so this can kind of help give a much more robust analysis. Um, Ian Ewer uses cultural probes, where it's kind of like a little package that you leave with people where they're supposed to take photos or play little games or like engage with their own household and then the researchers pick it up. So there's different ways to go about this kind of qu quicker in-depth analysis. Um, so that's kind of the body of literature I'm engaging with. So I'm trying to, yeah, so here we go. Why the fridge? <laughs> so what I, the fridge came about accidentally a little bit because I just, I think we were talking about it and Isabel had written her paper and um, we're just thinking about fridges, and I was like, I think I'm just going to photograph everyone's fridge when I go in. So I asked everyone if I could um, photograph their fridge. And that process actually proved to be super fascinating insofar as what they talked about more than I think the photos. But I have a little bit of that here. So it became a kind of object elicitation exercise more than anything. The cool thing I think about the fridge is that um, in material culture, it is... Daniel Miller writes about this, um, the humility of things, which is kind of the sense that things are um, always around us and they, they engage us and they not control what we do, but they have a certain power in our everyday lives and we don't really think about them. Um, and certain objects do this more than others. So, the fridge I consider a very unobtrusive household object that while it's present and you use it every day and it has these daily flows of food, um, it's really not thought about in at least the West. It's just so normative. So that's why it has this kind of unobtrusive quality. Whereas a cell phone becomes rather like always you know, annoying you. Like now I'm looking at these texts and I'm like, oh, I should look at those, but you can't. So there's this kind of like different engagement where this is just um, you don't think about it unless you're cooking or it's having this use. So this is kind of a distinction. Uh, I think the other thing that that, that sort of pulls out is this, this idea um, that domestic objects can 
both have permanence and a transitory nature. So the fridge itself has a little bit of both. So I think that that also places it in, a, in an interesting place. So like furniture, for instance, is not that transitory. You might be moving furniture, but it's not, it's not and it might be coming in and out of the home, but in everyday life, it's kind of just there. Whereas the fridge has, it, the fridge is always there, but its contents are always changing. So there's that kind of dual element that it's engaging with. Um, so, the other thing about the fridge, I think that interests me is that there are these art pieces and um, photographs around food and fridges. So, actually I'll start with this one. This is what Isabel wrote about Mark, I can't say his name, Minjiver? Yeah. So he photographed different um, people's fridges and kind of just tags them by occupation and age. So this is uh, someone who works in the restaurant industry and this is a family. I believe, but like a healthy, some, healthy yeah, a fairly healthy organic family. Um, and then this other one is fairly well known too. Um, this is Hungry from Hungry Planet, which is not fridges, but it's everyone's food all around the world laid out in photographs. So I think there's, there's an artistic potential to this that I wanted to incorporate as well. Um, So as I said, I think despite these visual images I'm going to show you, I actually have more to say about what they elicit. Um, so I'm going to go through some of the ethnography that I had now and take you through the different household types. So this first house is a, um, a family of three, uh, a, a mother who's 36 and her husband who's also in his 30s and their toddler. Um, so she, she showed me her fridge, and before I asked to photograph it, and when we first got there, she had this on the outside of the fridge, which is a list of everything in the downstairs freezer that she always knows what's there. <laughs> so she's very, very organized. And she told me, um, as I see this and photograph this, she said, you know, I came from a family that had Depression-era leftover anxiety around food, so we always had a ton of food in the house, and I tend to have more than the average. Well, I don't know if I have more than the average person, but this piece of paper here tells me what's in the freezer in the basement, because otherwise I would just buy stuff and not know. But there's no need for us to have this kind of frozen food in the basement. There are three of us, and we get paid. Um, interestingly, though, she works with homeless populations. So there's a kind of, she kept bouncing in this interview between her own sense of needing the security around food to recognizing that she actually was very secure. Um, and she was the only one working in the family. So actually their income was fairly low on the middle class spectrum. Um, so the cooler thing, <laughs> cool is a very non-academic term, <laughs> the cooler thing about her was when I came back for the second interview, she was like, oh my God, you have to see my fridge. <laughs> and <laughs> freezer. Um, does anyone know what that is? <laughs> the, that is her breast milk. So she surprised me with an infant also, which was fascinating because this interview happened to have nine months between the two. Um, and she was like, oh, by the way, baby, didn't tell you last day. So, so this is the fridge in the first, or freezer in the first interview, and this is the freezer in the second interview. And the other, I think, really 
the cool thing that this elicited was she just ended up talking to me a lot about what it's like to be a working mom and have a stay-at-home father and what that position is like and how much kind of planning that takes. So it really gave me a lot of information about her sense of, of security and planning and how that had to how that worked for her with her food choices. So I think this is my favorite photo. <laughs> um, so switch now to another couple. <laughs> so another kind of big, because I interviewed last woman, Michelle, I interviewed her alone without her husband, so I didn't really get the collaborative interview process, but most couples I interviewed together so a neat thing about opening the fridge and talking about food with couples is that you hear their debates <laughs> in real time. And they're often contentious. You don't even know. I think there's stuff that comes out that they don't even know. <laughs> so this couple um, ha had a lot. I actually I've, I spent a lot of time with them um, over the year. And I spent, I think, just because of gender, a lot more time with her. And so I heard outside of the home as well, just like, lots of in-depth, you know, this food conversation just kept carrying out beyond the interview. So she really felt, um, she had moved in with him about a year prior, and so they're still kind of learning this way of living together, and she was just devastated by gaining uh, 20 pounds and his horrible diet and how she was getting involved in his bad eating habits. Um, and she tied this to everything from, like, their relationship they ended up breaking up to, um, I know, it's great for me. <laughs> to her, like, uh, issues with politics and food systems in America. And it just was really, like, it was actually a very rich experience. But this was one of the initial moments in, in the interview about ice cream. And I think this quote was really funny because they were talking about his ice cream eating habit. And I was like, can I see it? And I opened the fridge and I gasped. I was like, oh, that's so much ice cream because I don't eat sugar. And <laughs> he was like, no, that's not even bad ice cream. That's healthy ice cream. It's like ice, it's water. And she said, that's nothing. He can eat that in one night. Um, and he said, oh my God, if I'm in normal ice cream eating mode, she said, those would all be gone in one night. And he said, the, oh, this was in the interview about health and well-being. He said, yeah, that would be the biggest obstacle to my physical well-being for sure, <laughs> this ice cream. So this is kind of another cool use of this fridge. Um, this is another favorite of mine. Um, these are two different households. And one is a single female living alone, and one is a single man living alone. <laughs> Can you guess? No, that's bad. <laughs> we shouldn't genderize this from the image. Um, this is actually a single female in her 30s, and this is a single man in his 40s. Um, she was never married. He was divorced. Just for I don't think you can. I don't think you can analyze people from their fridges. I think you can only get information. So I want to be clear about that. It's like not a psychology kind of project. It's a sort of social engagement. Um, so this woman, uh, I opened her fridge and I kind of also like chuckled and I was like, oh. Yeah. I think I said nothing, I just kind of opened it and she was like, oh yeah, I, I never have food. And then that turned into her talking about always going out to eat with friends. So she never really had food in the house because she always wanted to eat out. 
um, or she'd get takeout and bring it home. So she really felt a lot of loneliness around cooking alone. Um, it was just not something she did. So this is breakfast food, basically. Uh, this man also, fascinatingly, kind of immediately was like, I have to comment on all fear. <laughs> There's a lot of fear. He said, I really don't like eating alone. I like entertaining, so I always keep a stocked fridge full of beer, and then I cook big meals for my friends, and I invite everyone over. At least, I think he does it at least once a week, if not more. So he was very active in that kind of entertaining world, and then otherwise would go out to eat. I think that I didn't, and I didn't include it, but another woman, I have four single adults, another woman who was in her 60s, she was a widow, she only ordered um, Blue Apron. So do you, you don't have Blue Apron in the UK, it's the US. So it's like, I think HelloFresh or something, it's like shipped to your, to your door and it's just one meal or two meals and you cook it. So she only did that, so she just only had Blue Apron and then... Um, not everyone wanted me to use the fridges, so she wanted me, that's why it's not included. Um, so I thought that this was really fascinating because it kind of showed this sociality, and I think at this point with these examples, you can see that sociality emerging in different ways, where in the first it's about this family and kind of these family dynamics and how you make that work. With the couples, it's, it's so much about negotiation in general um, and families. Um, and then here, I think it really proved to me that people, like food decisions are made around others more than around health in this community. So I thought that was also very interesting. And this was a very like liberal, <laughs> one joke is the post, a post-health community where they're like, we did the healthy diet thing and now we're into being happy. So, <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting group in the world, I'd say, not necessarily representative. Um, let's see, so this, this example is a house I lived in and I decided to take a photograph of our fridge over three months, once a month, um, just on the first of the month kind of thing. So the, this one is, I think, I think it's April, May, and June, yeah. Um, and April is when, was when I moved in. So that's what the fridge looked like when I moved in. So um, clearly I buy food. So, <laughs> so then we ended up having a lot, I think these two look similar because of that. Um, but I also thought it was interesting that here we start seeing the fresh food come out and that storage of the fresh food that is um, purchased from farmer's markets. So, so I thought that this is another way of using Fridges is a kind of not just object solicitation, but ha um, having a photographic record of, of diets over time. Um, and it's something that you can then take back to participants and ask them questions about these kinds of changes and see what they have. So then you can do kind of a, a photo elicitation instead of an object elicitation. Um, the last thing. Oh, before I go on to the last thing, or the last ethnographic example, I wanted to mention that part of what made me think about this even further is a collaboration with uh, Tenna, is it Jensen? Jensen, yeah. In um, <coughs> Copenhagen, who had done a study with the elderly um, and elderly food habits in Copenhagen, and she ended up photographing fridges as well. So we compared and contrasted 
our, our two findings. Um, and, and this was so interesting to me because she was actually doing that type of study where you're really only going in for one or two interviews. So it had more of that, that methodological question actually engaged, but it was limited for her to just elderly adults who are often living alone. So I think I got a lot more information around the sociality where she got a lot more information about how you can use the fridge to test what people are telling you in an interview, to kind of open it and then see if they're, if they're telling you the truth about their diets, um, what else they might be leaving out, why are they leaving it out, kind of just more getting a bit more rounded experience from, from the object elicitation. So it's a little bit different, and because and it's not my work, I didn't include it. Um, but definitely, we have, we're working on a paper, so it's going to be out at some point together. So the, the thing I kind of want to leave with, or like the last ethnographic example, um, is a bit longer, and it's not a fridge. And I want to do this because I think that I think that with the fridge, it, it like I said, it has this quality that's in every home. It's um, it, it's unobtrusive and it has these everyday flows, so it has these nice qualities to it that make it a very easy, I think, methodological object to work with. I think that you can very quickly turn that into other things that lots of people have, such as um, cabinets of dry foods. So I want to leave, start do one of those just because I think that the ethnography is fascinating to me. Mm. So, um, and I'm going to read this a bit more because because it's a dialogue. I wish I could play you the interview, but I wish I got ethical permission to use clips of interviews because I feel like it's so much more interesting to hear them. <laughs> um, but so in this interview, um, this is also with Bruce and Chloe, who were the ice cream couple. Um, and at this point, she had told me several times before, before going into her home, so this was during the second interview, um, about the junk food drawer. I think she called it a junk food cabinet, it turned out to be a drawer. The junk food cabinet, and she just like, literally probably every time we met for coffee, she would talk about this junk food cabinet and how it was driving her nuts and how every time she opened it, she had to eat something. So I went to her house. And I asked to see the junk food cabinet. Um, <laughs> so I think that because she had told me about it, that's why it became a part of it. I wasn't, besides fridges, I wasn't asking to go in people's cabinets or pantries. Because it was the fridge was kind of an experiment during field work. So this was one example, I think, of where you could take this further. Um, so I opened the drawer, and this is the first time Bruce, her boyfriend, um, even has any idea that there's anything about this cabinet. <laughs> So she's talked to me about it for forever, but never mentioned to him. So I say to Bruce, she's brought this up so many times, and he wonders, in what context? And she jumps in, well, it's terrible in all sorts of ways. But the ways in which it's terrible have been evolving, so I, so I think for many things. I mean, I think I was amazed when we first got together at the amount of chips you ate. And there were some parts of it, like the junk food aspect, but also the coming back to an American culture and the range of choice. She had moved back from Australia, actually, important piece. Um, she's American, but she had lived in Australia for 10 years. So she was engaging with that Americanness. Um, like in like processed shit and all that, and like packaging and the convenience aspect. Are you listening? <laughs> Bruce is looking at the screen of his phone. 
which actually strikes me as unusual for him while in the company of others. Earlier in our circuitous tour of their home, Bruce told me that his phone is in the way of his sense of well-being, stating, it's become like a horrible appendage I can't get away from. He's actually been on the phone ever since, interrupting us once to ask for my email so he could send me photos of the house. I'm listening, he responds to Chloe now. She offers an annoyed okay. It's just Tim. Speaking of chips, he takes a bag from the drawer and rips it open. The crinkling sound of the chip bag can be heard through the next 10 minutes of the recording. The phone remains in his other hand. Chloe continues, okay, so there's a lot about that, but then this has also become where I keep all the nuts. I binge eat and shit like that. So it's gone from like a metaphor of all the terrible stuff to my own bad habits and all the things that aren't good for me. And I respond, I have to say I was surprised when you opened it when I first asked you to show me that it was healthy junk food. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it's Whole Foods junk food. So Whole Foods is, you're probably familiar with a little bit, but it's a very large um, kind of healthy, it's trademarked America's healthiest grocery store. Um, So these are all things from from like a health food store, but they're junk food, Uh, post-health community, because that's a good example. Uh, very, very middle-class, uh, liberal, New England. Um, so Bruce crunching on the chip says, it's relatively healthy, you have seeds and nuts. And Chloe explains, well, I think in part because this has been some of my culture shock. Like you can get, you know, and these I bought, but like there's X number of flavors of whatever that is, like fat-free whatever. Bruce, who's chewing loudly, you can hear it, interrupts. These are pretty good, cheddar and sour cream. And like these wasabi soy, Chloe continues, it's just crazy to me, it used to be fucking Doritos and corn chips. (laughs) Bruce is preoccupied with the flavors themselves. These are really fucking good. Do you like wasabi? (laughs) He asked me. I like that all she did was open the drawer, I said. (laughs) And I start eating, he says. No appetite, but I just start eating. At this point, the drawer becomes such a distraction that I am not sure any of us are listening to each other at all. So the recording was really fascinating for me to look through. Um, Chloe and Bruce are speaking over one another and at the same time. So she says, and, it's, and that's part of what the thing is. And he goes, I have no appetite at all. I'm just eating up. And she says, and there is something about the convenience and how responsive I am in these ways. And then in the middle of this, I go, wow, these are good. So it's kind of a lot of interesting stuff going on. And then Bruce says, yeah, it's pretty bad. And then he turns to Chloe and he pulls us back together. So is this drawer one of the things that does not contribute to your well-being? And she said, yeah, I feel less so now. There's something I'm trying to capture about my bad eating habits and my anxious eating habits that really isn't capturable in one particular thing because I'm actually, because I actually like this room, the kitchen, unlike you, he doesn't like the kitchen, but some of my habits in here I don't like. So it's more about the self than the space, I wonder, and she said, yeah, something about the intersection. So it was kind of interesting to me, both in the moment, but more listening through the recording about this kind of interruptive messiness to these kinds of objects of elicitation. That in it comes out all these um, 
it, I think it's like very ethnographically rich because from it I could pick out a lot more retrospectively as far as what was going on in their relationship at the time. Because one of the qualities of their relationship that um, came out in other interviews and other um, field notes was that uh, they didn't really listen to each other. Um, and both of them had kind of complained about that separately. And then here, it really came out, actually, in this very interesting way and around the food. So it, was, it, it gave me a lot of depth. So I think I, I concluded it because I think it's actually the best example of that depth um, that I wasn't able to get from a fridge overall, but it did happen with food. Um, so something to kind of play with. Finishing up. <laughs> conclusions. Uh, basically, this is kind of simple. Um, I think fridges and potentially other food storage storage units are excellent object elicitation tools, especially for nutritional health and food practices. Um, and I think one of the things it does really challenge is, is individual behavior, because I think it re-socializes food choices. Um, the fridge is also this interesting object because it's unobtrusive, permanent, and a source of everyday clothes. It's also enduring, um, the photograph, photograph aspect, because you can keep them and you can reference them later. And it's also comparative, so it's in all homes. And Antenna did a lot more with that comparative aspect because she was actually doing a focus study on the elderly, so she could work through that more. Um, where mine is, um, it was very open-ended. There, and these are not, there's no way I could really compare households. Um, there's some trends, but there wasn't enough households to really say anything about that. Um, and I mostly think that this is an efficient and productive way to gather everyday health data. So to kind of take this idea of everyday material culture, which is very complex and takes field work, and do it in a little microcosm space, and do it in a small interview. Um, yeah, I don't think it takes very much time. It's interesting. That's about that. I think that's it. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Yeah.